Hi there. Welcome along to the now award-winning High Performance Podcast. Can I just say thanks very much to the British Podcast Awards for giving us a silver medal in the awards over the weekend. Um, we were truly touched. You know, we've only been going for about 18 months and there were some amazing, amazing podcasts up for awards. So for us to win a silver medal is incredible. But also thanks to you as well, because um, as you may have heard, we asked you to vote for the Listener's Choice Award. Now, just think how many potential podcasts people could vote for and the high performance podcast finished on the shortlist in the top 20 in terms of the number of votes that you gave us so can i just say thanks to the british podcast awards thanks to you and we're going to repay you by keeping these episodes and keeping the conversation going welcome to the very first olympics special from the high performance podcast One of the things that I had to carry for myself was the expectation, but also knowing I'd been able to do this in training gave me the reassurance um, that I needed to stand up behind a box and actually own an arena, which is what I did. To the extent that the moment that it was announced that, you know, this is this particular event, I walked out of the marshalling area. I actually, you know, shoulders went back. I stood up straight up. I walked out and I actually was, this is mine. Yeah, so get ready to hear from one of the most fascinating Olympians that I've I've ever met. Um, I'm so pleased we can bring you this episode. Before we get going, though, as you know by now, Lotus Cars are at the centre of the High Performance Podcast. Of course, they've won in Formula One. They've won in Indy 500. They've won Le Mans 24 Hours World Rally Championships. But they've also won Olympic gold. Because back in 1992, they created the Lotus Type 108. And, of course, it took Chris Boardman to Olympic gold all those years ago, man, I can't, 1992, 2002, how is that almost 30 years ago? That's crazy. He was one of my heroes growing up, Chris Boardman, and I was so lucky to work with him at the 2012 London Olympics. So Lotus created the Type 108. They also actually created the Type 110, which he rode in the Tour de France in 1994. And fast forward all the way to 2021, and once more, Lotus Engineering are producing the bike that the British Olympians will be riding around the track in Tokyo in the not-too-distant future. So once more, Lotus doing all they can to deliver gold medals for Great Britain and Lotus once again helping us bring you these high-performance podcasts. So thanks very much to Lotus Cars for also partnering with us for these Olympic specials. I think we should get on with it then. For the next five weeks, every Wednesday, the greatest former and current Olympians that you can ever imagine. We're going to have some incredible conversations and we start today with a true legend. Enjoy the latest high-performance podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today, we welcome an Australian who has more Olympic gold medals than anyone else. I'm sure you've heard that said many times about this guest. And we know that what he achieved over many years was remarkable. Yet today, we want to celebrate and explore how he achieved it. How did he develop that elite mindset at a young age? How did he deal with the expectation on a global stage? How did he make the decision to retire at just 24 years of age? And how did he find purpose away from the pool? Please welcome to High Performance, Ian Thorpe. Ian, nice to have you with us. Pleasure. Good to see you. So, what is 
high performance? Do you know what? I think it's around exceptionalism and accepting that as a mindset of what you want to do, what you want to accomplish, and then actually living a lifestyle that can deliver that. That's what I think it is because sport does become a lifestyle for many people. So how old were you then when you realized actually the commitment required for exceptionalism? That's a great question. I overheard my father telling one of his best friends about my ability and what I could be. And he's not the kind of person that would ever do that. I think what's probably closest is he's like a Yorkshireman, that he's actually hardcore. He's, you know, kind of that strong mindset of of what a man should be. But I overheard him to one of his friends and he actually compared me to what is Australia's greatest batsman. And it was to explain to my grandfather what level I was actually at in sport. So it was the comparison and things like that. But from him, I never expected it. And how old were you then, Ian, when, uh, when you heard that conversation? I was probably 13. And what did it do to you? Part of it, I actually didn't know. I didn't know how to respond to this because, you know, for me, for looking at my um, family's history, you know, my family played cricket. So the comparison itself it almost felt as though it was too much. Even though it may have been accurate, I considered at the time that I was just a talented young athlete and there was plenty of talented young athletes that existed before myself. And at that particular time, I felt as though there's too many of those athletes that actually don't progress on. And that's how I felt. I thought I was just a childhood star. Ian, can I ask you about the role of your dad then? Because that's a fascinating story that you just shared. And and I'm interested in the support from your parents that I know your dad had been a promising cricketer himself, but his own experiences had, had led him to emphasise the importance of fun when it came to you and your sister participating in sports. Good research. When cricket players speak to me, they speak to me about my father. He was an exceptional cricket player at the local level, but gave up his career. And it was partly due to my my grandfather that there was a lot of pressure on him. And I shouldn't speak ill because I don't feel that way for my my grandfather but it contributed to my father, you know, removing himself from cricket. He was, you know, 18 or 19, I believe, when he stopped playing. And it was a disappointment for a lot of people. I ended up um, going with my mother and my, my sister and actually watching him play cricket later in his life. He was gifted everything basically just to be back on the pitch. He was originally the coach, but the top cricket players, you know, all donated, you know, everything to him just to see him play again. I believe he still may hold some of the records for what happened in what would be the equivalent of county cricket, but he won't speak to me about that. It's one of those things that, goes unspoken and I have a level of respect for that and he would be embarrassed if I was to you know resort to speaking about it which I'm doing right now. But how do you feel that his experiences influenced the way that he chose to parent you when he obviously recognized that you had a level of exceptional talent like what tips or advice when you reflect on his parenting style do you think help you? No, my parents were exceptional in terms of 
what is appropriate for someone that is a talented young athlete, what to do and what not to do. My sister, who also made the national team, all we had to do, no matter what we took up, was we had to do a season. So, you know, for me, I played football. I also spun. But the commitment that I had was to a season of that particular sport. Um, And at the end of that season, it was up to us whether or not we wanted to continue it or if we didn't want to do it anymore. The other thing was for me, I used to get up at 4.17 in the morning and it was up to me to actually wake my parents. And so you see that there's a bit of balance to what you're doing rather than a parent that wakes up the child. It may be that my parents didn't want to get up, but this is the balance that for all kids that they should actually have is it's on them. It's not on their parents. If the parents are pushing a kid to wake up at 4.17, it's probably too much. They can encourage, but I don't think that they should set the alarm clock. So at the end of each season, when you were given the choice to carry on or stop, was there any pressure from your parents? Because as a parent myself, if my daughter wants to stop something straight away, I'm like, yeah, but you're really good, but you, you know, you've given up all this time. But how did they not apply almost um, un- subconscious pressure to you to carry on and, and put their own will on you? I actually believe my parents tried to hold me back. Really? Why was that? They thought I was growing up too fast. Um, so in when I was 13, my parents actually made me take uh, a couple of months, I believe it was, um, off swimming. And it was to make sure that I actually had some of those friendships and things like that. I actually hung out with my, my friends who didn't swim during that year. The reverse actually happened to that resolution of how I was progressing. So when I was 14, I made the national team. Before that, I qualified for, you know, an Olympic final. But it was, it was my family's way of kind of preventing me to be as successful and make sure that I actually had a childhood. So we're recording this in the morning UK time because you're in Australia, we're in the UK. So we started about 8 a.m. At quarter to eight, I was busy trying to get my daughter to get out of bed. 10 minutes before we should leave the house, right? So she's eight years old. You were a little bit older than that. What I'm trying to understand, though, is where your passion and your drive and your will came from at that age to set your alarm for 4.17 when most kids are like my daughter. Three and a half hours later, you're still having to drag them out of bed. Where did this come from? What was the driver? I used to do that as well. Good. I used to wake up very early and I was watching cartoons. So... My sister was going to swimming training and I'd wake up, I'd watch some cartoons. That was kind of my thing that I do. So I relate to your daughter probably better than I could relate to someone that is so passionate about what they do in the morning. And I also have to say, when I was eight years old, I did not train in the mornings. I was an athlete that was told by my parents, look, if you train once or twice a week, you can probably compete at these. And I took note and I stopped doing athletics at that time. And I actually started to do one or two swimming sessions per week. Then it gradually built. Um, So I started swimming when I was eight. There's a lot of swimmers that actually started earlier than that. So, Ian, it sounds like your parents had um, quite a far-sighted attitude towards your development and not putting undue pressure on you. I'm interested, though, that when you started to swim for uh, for the national team, did other people treat you as a 14-year-old or were you treated more in adult terms? No, never. So, I think my parents... If we look at the balance, I think they got it right um, for me. 
And I'd actually encourage other parents to do the same thing. For me, when I was 14 on the national team, I was heading to Japan. Um, my first trip that I made was when I was 12, um, and it was to New Zealand. But when I was a 14-year-old, I wasn't treated any differently to anyone else. One of my teammates that I had was asked by my sister, do you mind looking after him? And his response was, he's bigger than me. Maybe he should look after me on the team. And I don't believe that I was ever treated differently to anyone else. I know at the Sydney Olympics, I was actually the one that was dictating what should happen around, you know, competition and warming up and things like that with the rest of the team. It was actually me that were, was, I was delegating to other people. And even then you would only have been 18, is that right? 17. Can we talk at that stage then, 17, 18, a lot of people are just going out, finding their way through life, maybe a nightclub here and there, off to university. You're carrying the weight of expectation of a nation and more than one nation because you were hugely popular in other countries as well. How did you and did you learn to live with that level of expectation? Partly not at all. I made a decision, which was I refused to actually read anything about myself, avoid you know, what's reported on TV, those kinds of things. What led to that? I think I decided that it was better for me leading into the Sydney Olympics. And then I carried it on beyond that. And I believe for anyone, you either read everything about yourself or you read nothing. And the same, you watch everything or you watch nothing. But I also know I tried to avoid it during the Sydney Olympics and there was a front page of the paper which we drove past in the bus on the way to actually get to, you know, the swimming centre. And I believe, and I may be wrong, but I think it was 7.12 that was actually written, which was the time that I was up against my biggest competitor. And it was three days into the Olympic Games. And even though I tried, it was still there. So what help and support did you get then to deal with some of these emotional and psychological challenges? So physically, your talent spoke for itself. But as a young boy that was trying to catch up with your talent in many ways, psychologically, what support did you get, Ian? Great question. It was very little. And I actually don't know how anyone could do a better job of what they did at that time. I'm commanding the attention. I'm the one that is front and centre. And, you know, from that, no one would have realised that I actually, I struggled at times. They wouldn't know from anything that was observed from the outside. So... You know, most of the people within the Australian swim team would have just looked at me as the person that's leading rather than struggling at times. I want to talk to you about the role of, of a psychologist, if there was one within the team, and how he was perceived, how the athletes perceived him, and whether it was seen as a strength or a weakness to talk. We did have a psychologist that was in the team, and his role actually changed and I actually think he was a really decent person. For myself, I rarely went to see the psychologist. I went in for a pep talk and that was it. Um, that's all I needed. He ended up probably being someone that helped the coaches and some of the support staff more significantly than the athletes. And you know, I my personal opinion is that we shouldn't have um, sports psychologists. We should actually just have psychologists. That's it. I don't think there's particularly a specialty that comes with that. And I also think that athletes should be more well-rounded. Um, and that's why I say that we should just have psychologists, not specialised. 
So who was giving you the advice and support that 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 you said people on the outside wouldn't have been able to see that you were struggling? Who did see that? So in the lead up to Sydney, you know, I was mostly okay. So as, you know, a teenager, I was actually okay during that period. When I hit my 20s or my late teen years, that's when I had a more significant problem. You know, I'm someone that's out, you know, I have depression and I'm not pleased that I can say it, but I'm out there that I'm someone that from, you know, the late teenage years that's actually dealt with that. And when I look at the four years, because all athletes look at, well, all Olympic athletes look at quadrenniums, um, we look at four years. And I look at 2000 to 2004, which for me, there's some parts of it that were tumultuous. I trained with a coach that I was with since I was a child. And then I actually changed over to who was my assistant coach. I was significantly criticized. And I think mostly based on her gender. I was criticized for that. I went in in 2002, leading up to the 2004 Olympics. I broke board records. I won the 200 and 400 freestyle, but even that was not enough. That was quite a brave move, though, when you left Doug Frost as your coach and went to your assistant coach. What was it that prompted that? My assistant coach doing more than my coach at the time. I don't want to speak ill because of, you know, the performance side of what I've been able to do with my coach, um, which is Doug Frost, previous to Tracy. And it was Tracy that was actually uh, taking the times doing the work that I actually believe a coach should have been doing. She was doing more work. But what interests me, though, Ian, was that it would have been easy just to have kept on doing the same thing because you must have known that you would attract criticism for choosing to leave a coach. So No, I didn't at the time. So it would have been simpler. I agree with that. But it would have been preferred if I went with the establishment in coaching. So it would have been easier if I picked a coach, you know, and I have to say all men, within that group that's what it would have been appropriate at that time i was reading as well just around this coaching relationship that there was quite an interesting clash of styles it appeared from from reading reports of that period that your original coach used to speak about beating competitors and you seem to be more focused on beating yourself beating your own times would you explain a little bit about those two different outlooks yeah, that was never my strategy at all. I was all about what can I do in the pool um, and how can I actually be better at what I do. And my coach mostly would have been supportive of that at that time. But when I made the decision that I was actually leaving that coach, it was reinforced to me at the Commonwealth Games in Manchester in 2002. And my coach began to speak about one of my competitors' strategy in that race. Um, and I frankly said to them, if that's your opinion, perhaps you should, you know, coach them. I then went on to break a world record, which I still regret. Well, actually, I love that I have that world record, but I actually regret part of my performance because I swam faster than what I actually expected. Um, and I actually did it really easily. And I know that's a horrible thing to say and a bit of a deep comment, but I did feel that way. The reason I feel that way is I swam 340.09 or 08. I can't remember, but it was just above three minutes 40. And I 
actually never felt so good in water since then. So I would have swum under 340 if I actually tried during that race. So didn't you reflect on that and think, wow, my coach is amazing. They said something that got me so fired up. I smashed the world record and found it easy. No, I wasn't, I wasn't fired up. I was actually, I was correcting him, um, which I... But, he, but that worked though, because that... No, it didn't. You, that still... No, it wasn't that. It really wasn't. I was correcting him um, in what I was doing. I don't get fired up by people being angry or, you know, suggesting to do something. I actually, I don't need to be fired up. I need to be as relaxed as possible um, to get the best out of myself. Interesting. I just think it, it just takes bravery and real self-belief to... It's easy to get rid of a coach when you're losing and you're suddenly finishing fourth in finals and the medals have dried up. It's very different, isn't it, to change your coach when you're still breaking world records, still number one, still dominating. It is, and it came as a shock to him as well. And, you know, I've reconciled with him, you know, kind of post-splitting up, and he kind of validated, you know, what was an amazing part of my life. He actually said it was one of the best parts of his life. And I, I can appreciate that. And it's the same reason that if I see him, I actually give him a hug. That's how I feel. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We talk often on this podcast, Ian, about something called 100% responsibility, which is you taking responsibility for everything in your life, even the things that are not actually your responsibility, things that are outside of your control. But if you don't take responsibility, you're giving up that control. So can we talk about attention to detail and control and doing everything at that time to be a successful swimmer? I'd really love to dive into just how deep those processes were to get yourself to the precipice of the world? The one thing that I think separated me um, from others was my attention to detail. I perfected my stroke. And when I was, I think, 11, I think I did it. And it was to make it easier to actually be able to swim it was before national championships as a as a child. And I swam a lap and it was faster than what I'd swum before. And I didn't even try. I actually just lengthened my stroke. So all of a sudden I went, oh, if I lengthen my stroke and I actually kick together, I'll probably be faster. So after a couple of laps, I did that. So it was with my junior coach. So then for me, I tried to be a professor of my stroke and what I could do around efficiency. And the training model in Australia was basically you break down an athlete and, you know, we did 80 kilometres a week. My record, I think, was 120 kilometres or something like that at altitude. But basically you break down that athlete um, so where they fail and then you bring them back up. I refused to fail. And it came through efficiency in what I could do with my stroke. If any coach told me to do this, I'd actually make sure that I lengthened my stroke so I could make sure 
that I actually finished on the wall when I was supposed to. Wow. I love that attention to detail. So were you doing always more than everybody else? And if you were, did you start every race knowing that your superpower was that you were totally well prepared and you had no doubts? Wonderful question. Um, So yes, mostly. So from when I was probably 14 or 15, I was doing more laps than anyone else. And then as I got older, I was doing even more laps than someone else. One of the things that I had to carry for myself was the expectation, but also knowing I'd been able to do this in training gave me the reassurance um, that I needed to stand up behind a box and actually own an arena, which is what I did. To the extent that the moment that it was announced that, you know, this is this particular event, I walked out of the marshalling area. I actually, you know, shoulders went back. I stood up straight up. I walked out and I actually was, this is mine. And I walk out with that. I also made sure, and I didn't realize how intimidating this was, but I made sure that I actually jumped out of the pool after it without using the ladder. And my competitors have since said how intimidating that is. And I didn't realize really at the time. But, you know, my competitors knew that I accomplished more laps than what they ever have. The only time that I doubted this behind a block um, was the Athens Olympics in the 400 freestyle because I hadn't done um, the first block of training um, that I would have otherwise. And it was because I was disqualified at our trials. And for about eight weeks, I think, I didn't know that I'd be swimming that event. So how did that doubt affect you in Athens, Ian? It was the most emotional race that I've ever swum. Um, and I, I after it, um, so for the 400 freestyle, I had won since I was 15. So after this race, um, I'd won every competition that I'd raced this in. And I walked out the back after doing an interview um, with the media. I walked around. I saw my coach, which is Tracy, and I said to her, I am never effing doing that race ever again. And she said, do you know what? Good news for you. You never have to do it. And she said, let's go to get on with it, which the 200 was coming up, which was the race of the century, so to speak. So it was my reaction to her that she knew um, what I'd been through. And it wasn't anything that was physical. It was emotional for me because one of my mates actually gave up a spot to swim and he could have won a medal in that race. And I wasn't going to accept him giving up his place except for the reason that he gave me, which was you don't realize what you do on the first night of competition that actually lifts the team. So I want you to swim it, which is probably the only reason that I swam that race. And I'm grateful. He was my teammate and he was also my roommate during that competition. So we have a photo, which is of us, and he's got my gold medal around his neck. So it's something that I don't think has ever been seen, but that's how I felt. Do you know what I I like about that is um, how smart your mate was as well. He was like, right, I'm going to give up my place at the Olympics, but I'm just going to make it absolutely crystal clear to you that you better deliver on that first night to to make sure that it lifts the team. No, that was, do you know what? That was quite literally, that was the pressure is I didn't have a choice. I had to win. And I went into the race thinking about it is there's no other way. I must win this race, not only for my mate, but the country expected me to win. 
different to what it would have been in Sydney. I would have been a kid that was unprepared for the Olympics. Second Olympics, completely different. And also there was tension at that stage to make sure that I did win. You know, it was, again, expected, but there were some negative kind of comments around, you know, whether I'm going to be fit enough, all of those kind of things that come out. And again, I had to win. So can I ask you about motivation then, Ian? Because to sustain the high performance you did for so long, you've just described about you that nobody outworked you. And yet having seen swimmers training, it's brutally hard. You've got your head down in that pool for 120 kilometers a week, as you just described. What was it? Not that, every week, but yes. Yeah. But, well, sorry, but, but, but you were outworking your competitors by some distance. So what was it that motivated you to keep going for such a long period of time? I just wanted to be better. That's it. It wasn't that I wanted to beat someone. It was quite simply, I strived to be perfect in the water and I modified my stroke, everything that I did to be able to achieve that. And what happened when you felt that you had achieved it then? I still haven't. But you famously walked away where you cited that you almost felt that you'd lost that motivation when you decided to retire first time. So what was it that that was missing or that disappeared for you to come to that conclusion? During that period, it was the context of what swimming was for me that completely changed. Um, it was less about me swimming up and down a pool that it became responding to the media and things like that. So for me, I was also, you know, I was paparazzi at home and it just the context of my sport changed where it never existed before. I never thought that there was an athlete in swimming that would have to go through that. And so I'd, I'd never prepared for it. And for me, as someone that's quite private, it became a struggle. And it was more significant than anything else that I could do in the pool, where I decided that's it. We spoke to Marcellino Sambayi, um, the principal lead dancer for the Royal Ballet. And he told us that authenticity was key to high performance for him, that only by embracing who he really was, you know, he came out at a relatively young age that allowed him to go and dance with real liberation. Now, you came out after you'd finished competing as an elite athlete. But the question I wonder is, if you feel you'd have come out earlier, do you feel that that would have improved or enhanced your performance? Look, there's parts of me that look back and I wish that I actually could have come out. I struggled with it. And I continued to struggle um, just as I'm not as accepting of myself um, as I should have been at that particular time. And I guess it's why, you know, gay people, and I say that broadly, um, why they continue to come out in countries like Australia, the UK, the US, most of Europe, we actually have a complete acceptability of people being gay. I came from a conservative family and it's not an excuse in any way, but I also came into a position where it was expected for me to come out and I refused to actually allow any journalist that asked me the question, if I'm gay, I refuse to actually allow them that. I was prepared to do something with someone that was considerate, but never um, someone that was so trashy to ask a question like that. And it's a question that I don't think anyone should ever ask anyone else. But we still... I still feel we have quite a way to go. I'm friends with a, a professional footballer who can't come out. No current professional footballer in the UK anyway has ever felt the ability to come out. 
what do we still need to do to make people feel that no matter what their job, what part of the world they're existing in, the part of the world obviously is a big problem because there are some countries where you simply can't. But if you are in Australia or you are in the UK, what can we say on here, if anything at all, to give people the power or the confidence that, that it's okay to be totally you? So firstly, even the question itself, and I know that you're intended with, you know, the best of intent, it just shouldn't exist. People need their own time. I have been asked about this considerably. You know, I also get asked by kids on Instagram um, and things like that, you know, what do I do? And they're in circumstances that are far more extreme than what I actually went through. And, you know, I can only give general advice to those kids. I actually can't engage with them to say, do you know what, you're going to be okay. You know, the first night and what I tell young people um, when I have the platform is just make sure that you actually have a safe place to go to the first night because you don't know who will or won't support you. And don't assume that the first people that you come out to are your family. You should actually have people on your side that are supporters. So they may be friends or, you know, someone else. Um, that's what I think most young people should do when they come out. When it comes to looking at professional football players, I'm shocked. I'm surprised that there isn't a gay um, football player in the UK or in, you know, UEFA or wherever. And I also, I don't understand it because I've spoken to multiple um, athletes and I've been writing a book, which is almost finished, which is Had I Said Yes. It was when I was asked by a journalist when I was 16 if I was gay. Not appropriate and wrong. But I assume during this book, if I had come out, so I actually look at what the world looked like at that time. There were countries that I would be training in that actually banned homosexuality. So there's a lot that kind of comes up. But what I look at within this book is, you know, what it would have looked like for me. But I'd encourage people, you know, and do you know what? Athletes, people can text me or athletes that have access to me can actually say something and I can tell them that all of those things and from speaking to athletes during this time, we all have the same concerns and it's actually okay and I actually think it may be beneficial. So Ian, touching on this topic, I, I saw that documentary series that you did on bullying that I thought was incredibly powerful uh, when it was originally released and Linking that to high performance, I think that anyone that goes after trying to strive for excellence or the best that they can do in their lives will sometimes come up with that tall poppy syndrome of people that will want to knock them down or drag them back into the park. Can you tell us what you learn about bullying, whether that's through your own experiences or that documentary, that can help somebody that maybe experiences some of those challenges? I don't know if I was bullied. Um, I most definitely went through a difficult, you know, time in Australia. Um, I'm no longer bullied, if that actually helps out with answering the question. But the reason I don't say that I was bullied, I went through and I witnessed kids that it was shocking the way that they were bullied. I had to watch footage and it sounds... Look, it sounds ridiculous that I'm concerned about footage compared to what these kids went through. I watched it for the first time with their parents. And these are kids that have one girl was actually pushed downstairs and she has a disability. She could have died from what was happening to her. I also met a young man who he was pushed down to the ground and was actually kicked. And I watched it for the first time with their families and it's horrible. So compared to that, 
I can't compare myself to being bullied because it wasn't physical. Um, part of it may have been emotional. Part of it may have come from the media. So that's where I stand. And I just expect better from everyone. I think it's, it's brilliant that you've used your platforms since you stopped swimming um, to share what you really think, to help other people, to uh, take the world in the right direction. I just want to talk briefly if we can about how you coped though when swimming ended we interviewed johnny wilkinson for this and he described to us which is slightly abstract Ian, that for him doing the washing up is as important as winning the rugby world cup really because i disagree he's, he, but yes. because well what he said was to win the rugby world cup you're moving your body to achieve a goal to do the washing up you're moving your body to achieve a goal and then he went on to say and if winning the rugby world cup is more important than doing the washing up. I'm no longer a rugby player, so am I less important as a person now than when I was a professional athlete? He refuses to go to that place. So for him, it's as important. He's as relevant. He means as much. That's an interesting take. I wonder how you respond to that. Um, I respond by saying, do you, do you mind Johnny Wilkinson coming over and doing my washing up? Um, like that would be perfect um but i'll go beyond that um but you understand you understand what he's trying to say i I know exactly what you're saying um so i'll answer it in a more intelligent way i hope (laughs) um if we consider you know what sporting performances are as great um if we look at that and consider you know that you know, we, we're committed to one thing and, you know, then all of a sudden it actually finishes. And think of loss and the stages of grieving that you might go through. That's actually what I think it is. And if someone explains it to you, you actually get it a lot quicker than, you know, if nothing's explained. So the first time that I finished my career, no one told me. The second time I was actually prepared for it. So completely different situations. And I believe there is a study that actually articulates this. They looked at um, the divorce rate of APO players that separated from their wives after it and were looking at the reason. Basically, it has nothing to do with them being famous or anything else and it actually had to do with them not knowing what to do with their lives and because they were disassociated with what they've done on the football pitch or whatever else they didn't know how to define them the limelight went away the income went away all of these things contribute to their probably lack of confidence, but this was the main reason that psychologists took away from this. Very interesting. And how are you now? You know, we've spoken on this about the the amazing career you had right from the age of 14, the highs, the lows, the places you had to take yourself to be successful. Are, are you happy at the moment? Is life good? Are you, uh, are you in the flow? Life's good. Um, do you know what? I have my ups and downs and I'm more confident in saying that, knowing that there's more ups than downs coming on. And that's how I feel. Um, as simple as that. So how did you refine that sense of purpose, Annie? And what sort of questions did you ask yourself post your swimming career that helped you to establish a new direction? I pushed myself. I continue to want to learn about the world. I realized when I was very young, um, I was 13 or 14 at the time, and I was taking a geography lesson, and it was on a plane on my way to Rio, which it was my first time in South America, and I was a kid. Like, let's just be realistic about it. But I realized I was about to be marked, I think, from the head coach who happened to be a teacher. And I was, he made sure that I didn't cheat or anything else like that. But he said to me during my exam, he said, look out the window. 
And I was describing the topography of what looks like a tropical environment, um, which he was aware of. And he actually sent me to look out the window. And I realized, do you know what? There's a lot in my life um, that I have. And the way that I learn may not be the same as anyone else. It may be just from human experience and whatnot. And that's kind of what I've become more comfortable with. Wow, that's powerful. Love it. I love it. Listen, thank you so much for taking the time. Before we say goodbye, though, we have our quickfire questions, Ian. So the first one is, Ian, what are the three non-negotiable behaviours you and the people around you have to buy into? Um, I think, honestly, integrity and patience. So what ghosts from your childhood still rattle around your adult body? None. <laughs> what is your biggest strength and what is your biggest weakness? Um, I actually, I, I think my mental strength and equally, I actually think it's <laughs> on the flip side, my mental health. Um, you know, I, I'm someone that goes into a competition confident, um, but I'm also someone that struggles uh, to wake up in the morning um, or not wake up, but to get, to get out of bed. And I tell people 50% of accomplishing anything is actually just getting started. And so I say, just get out of bed and then you're on your way. Love it. Action leads to motivation. Absolutely. What one book would you recommend for our listeners? Um, anything by Noam Chomsky or Osho or Peter Singer. Why have those particular books and authors I actually love them spoke to um, all of them um, I love um, you know when it comes to Noam Chomsky I study linguistics at university so I actually love his work when it comes to Peter Singer he's an ethicist from Australia I should say who I love his work and then you know I'll show for me, it was a different consideration of how the world works. And if you went to a desert island and you had to only take one book? That's a new question. Um, yeah, actually, it would be an Osho book. Um, so it would be The Man Who Loves Seagulls. If you like it, you buy the others. Um, and finally, your one golden rule for people listening to this podcast to go and live their own high performance life. Stop paying attention to anyone else. Pay attention to the people that you care about. And usually you can count those people on one hand. And if you can't count them on one hand, it may be two. If it's more than two, um, you're kidding yourself. But that's how I feel about relationships. And that's how you get the best out of yourself. Listen, um, I can't thank you enough, Ian, for taking the time to talk to us. I think that was a really powerful conversation. It was about the power of parenting at the beginning. It was about the power of dedicating yourself as an athlete in the middle. And then actually about the power of making really brave and tough decisions that are right for you um, towards the end. And uh, when you spoke at the end and you said that your biggest strength is your mental strength and your biggest weakness is your mental health. I think that is a really important lesson and a message for people because I think people think poor mental health is poor mental strength and the two are are not are not entwined, are they? No, not at all. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you for your time as well. Oh, thank you, and it's been a real, a real privilege to listen to you. Thank you. Damien. Jake. The power of parenting is strong and if any parents listening to this are in any doubt how the decisions that they make on a daily basis now are going to impact their kids in years to come just listen to that podcast from Ian Thorpe and you'll realize that um what's the phrase you use the, the ghosts from our childhood that rattle around our adult body those ghosts from the parenting that we receive rattle around forever absolutely I love that I love the the challenge in the notion of you know pushy parenting or helicopter parenting of just I love the fact that he tells us about how his dad said to him, you know, I'll take you swimming, but you have to be the one that gets up. You know, I love the idea of only asking him to commit to something for a year and then deciding after that whether you want to go again. I think it's there was just so many valuable lessons there for, I know me and you are both fathers. I think to be able to take it and apply it to our own children's lives, 
I hope there's people listening to this that can feel they can do the same as well. And we've had that now from a few guests, you know, whether it's Ian Thorpe talking about every year they gave me an opportunity. If I wasn't enjoying it, I could stop. You know, Hector Bayer in the Arsenal defender talking about the fact that it's only, as a child, it should only be about enjoyment, not about not about success. And I think we need to, we just need almost to reframe completely what we judge as good or bad for our children. If it's anything other than does it make them happy or not, it's kind of, it's difficult to justify it, I think. Exactly. And I think that can often be misinterpreted as being almost like a soft thing to focus on. But if they're happy, they're going to come back and do it again. And if they're going to come back, they're going to learn. If they're going to, if they're enjoying it, they're going to invest more time. They're going to explore it. I just think there's so many benefits. And these are guys that have been to the summit of their professions telling us this. I think any of us can learn from it. I did a talk at a football club recently and it was to the parents of the children who were the latest to be given uh, contracts in the academy. And we sat in front of all the parents and the message really was, um, you need to be really on it when it comes to looking after the mental well-being and the mental health of your children. And I could see some of these parents were thinking, hold on a minute, my, my son is the happiest he's ever been. He's just been offered a professional contract or an academy contract at a, at a Premier League football club. I really don't need to be worrying about their mental health because my kid is flying at the moment. And the message from the club, which I thought was really smart, was the very thing that means your son has been offered a contract from us is also the very thing that will mean there is likely to be higher rates of mental health issues later down the line because of the drive, the will to succeed, the passion, the high standards they set for themselves, the non-negotiables that they live with. If they're living with all of those at 11, 12, 13 years of age and their career doesn't go the way they want it to or at times, as Ian Thorpe shows, their career does go the way they want it to, it's still those things that got you there in the first place that can really derail you. And I thought it was really powerful the way that Ian spoke on that. Wow, yeah. I, I, I love that message. I love that that's been given out to parents as tools to get them to start to think about this, the, it, just the value of it. I think, like you say, some of those attributes that Ian spoke about, that like, I was thinking about it after we'd spoken. Imagine putting your head down in water for 80 kilometres every week and just following the line at the bottom of a pool. That That's not just a physical task. You're having to go deep into your own psychology to understand how do you choose to do that every day and push yourself to those limits and I think what Ian spoke about was actually don't worry about labeling things sports psychology just label it as psychology and mindset and allowing people the chance to be able to articulate and understand it is invaluable another really interesting conversation thanks for your time mate no oh, thank you Jake I loved it I can't thank you enough for tuning in and listening to today's episode. Can I just remind you, though, of all the ways you can get involved with us here on High Performance? Of course, you can follow us on Instagram. Damien is at Liquid Thinker. I'm at Jake Humphrey. The podcast is at High Performance. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube. We've had tens of millions of views of the videos on there. So as well as listening to what our guests have to say, I think it makes a real difference also getting the opportunity to see the emotion in their faces and the way they're talking to us and the setting in which we're having these conversations. So just type in High Performance Podcast on YouTube. But I think the single, I suppose the single most in-depth way that you can share the world of high performance with us is by becoming a member for free of the High Performance Circle. There you will get keynote speeches from incredible leaders. You will get exclusive podcast episodes that you will hear there before you hear them anywhere else. High Performance Boosts, which are just 10 minutes long, lovely bits, short nuggets of information just to lift you up and equip you for the life that you live. And as well as that, we'll give you monthly newsletters. We've got some great offers coming on the High Performance Circle as well. It's completely free for you to be a member. All you have to do is go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, click on the High Performance Circle, you'll get your invite, you're in, and you can start accessing all of that incredible goodness. And don't forget, order the book as well. It's out on the 9th of December. Um, I'm not sure when we're going to reveal the cover, but I think it's soon. I think before long you will see the first ever cover of the first ever high performance book. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But for now, can I just say a huge thanks to Damien for his hard work on this podcast, to Will and Hannah as well, to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio. But I say it every week, I can't say it enough. Thanks to you. Every single day, 
I get messages on Instagram or messages on Twitter from people telling me that this podcast has changed their lives and it is that that drives us to keep on delivering the goodness that I know is having a real impact. So we'll keep on doing it. You keep on reaching out. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. And of course, as you know, without Lotus Cars, we wouldn't be doing this. Check out the new Emira. It's stunning. Uh, At Lotus Cars across social media to follow them. But for now, from everyone on the High Performance Podcast, have a high performance day and keep that smile on your face. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.